Welcome to this Ubula Audio presentation of The Skylark of Space by E.E. E. Doc Smith. Volume 7, Chapter 18 That was a beautiful bluff, Dick, Dunark exclaimed as the door closed behind Nalboon and his guards. Exactly the right tone. You have got him guessing now. I got him all right, for the moment, but I'm wondering how long it's going to hold him. He's a big-time operator, and he's smart. The smart thing for us to do, I think, will be to take off for the Skylark right now, before he can get organized. What do you think, Mart? I agree completely. We're altogether too vulnerable here. The Earth people quickly secured the few personal things they had brought with them. Seaton stepped out into the hall and waved the guards away, and motioned Dunark to lead the way. The other Kondalians fell in behind, as usual, and the group walked boldly toward the exit nearest the landing dock. The guards offered no opposition, but stood at attention and saluted as they passed. The officer lifted his microphone, however, and Seaton knew that Nalboon was being kept informed of every development. Outside the palace, Dunark turned his head. Run! he snapped, and all did so. If they get a flyer into the air before we reach the dock, it will be too bad. There will be no pursuit from the palace. It is not expendable. But the dock would be tough. Rounding a metal statue some fifty feet from the base of the towering dock, they saw that the door of one of the elevators was open, and the two guards stood just inside it. At the sight of the party, the guards raised their guns. But fast as they were, Seaton was faster. At first sight of the open door, he had taken two quick steps and hurled himself across the intervening forty feet in a football plunge. Before the two soldiers could bring their guns to bear, he crashed into them, hurling them across the cage and crushing them against its metal wall. Good work, Dunark said. He stripped the unconscious guards of their weapons and, after asking Seton's permission, distributed them among the men of his party. Now perhaps we can surprise whoever is on the roof. That is why you didn't shoot. No, Seaton grunted. We needed this elevator. Wouldn't be much good after taking a Mark I load. He threw the two Mardinalians out of the elevator and closed the door. Dunark took the controls. The elevator shot upward, stopping at a level well below the top. He took a tubular device from his belt and fitted it over the muzzle of the Mardinalian pistol. We get out here. Dunark said, and go up the rest of the way by the side stairs that aren't used much. We'll meet a few guards, probably, but I can take care of them. Stay behind me, please, everyone. Seaton promptly objected, and Dunark went on. No, Dick, stay back. You know as much about this as I do. I know that, but you can't get at the knowledge as fast. I'll let you take over when we reach the top. Dunark took the lead his pistol resting lightly against his hip. At the first turn of the corridor, they came upon four guards. The pistol did not leave Dunark's hip, but there were four subdued clicks in faster succession than a man could count, and the four men went down. What a silencer, Duquesne whispered to Seaton. I didn't suppose a silencer could work that fast. They don't use powder, Seaton replied absently, all his faculties pinned to the next corner. They use force field projection. Dunark disposed of several more groups of guards before the head of the last stairway was reached. He stopped there. 
Now, Dick, you take over. I'm speaking English so I won't have to order each of my men individually. Command them, literally, not to take my place at your side. We'll need all the speed and all the firepower you have. There are hundreds of men on the roof outside, with a rapid-fire cannon throwing a thousand shells a minute. If Crane will give me his pistols, you can kick that door open as soon as you're ready. I've got a much better idea than that, Duquesne said. I'm as fast as you are, Seaton, and like you I can use both hands. Give me the guns. We'll have them cleaned out before the door gets fully open. Now there's a thought. Huh, really a thought, Seaton said. All right, Mart, hand him over. Are you ready, Blackie? On your mark, get set, go. He kicked the door open, and there was a stuttering crash as the four weapons burst into almost continuous flame. A crash obliterated by an overwhelming concatenation of sound as the explosive bullets, sweeping the roof with a rapidly opening fan of death, struck their marks and exploded. It was well the two men in the doorway were past masters in the art of handling their weapons, and that they had in their bullets the force of giant shells. For rank upon rank of soldiery were massed there, engines of destruction covered elevators, doorways, and approaches. So fast and fierce was the approach that trained gunners had no time to press their switches. The battle lasted approximately one second. It was over while shattered remnants of guns and fragments of metal and stone of the dock were still falling through a fine mist of what had once been men. Assured that not a single Mardinalian remained upon the dock, Seaton waved emphatically to the others. Snap it up, he yelled. This is going to be hotter than the middle of Hades in about one minute. He led the way across the dock toward the Skylark, choosing the path with care between yawning holes. The ship was still in place, still held and movable by the attractor. But what a sight she was. Her quartz windows were shattered, her Norwegian armor skin dented and warped and fissured. Half her plating was gone. Not a shot had struck her. All this damage had been done by flying fragments of the guns and the dock itself. And Seaton and Crane, who had developed the new explosive, were aghast at its awful power. They climbed hastily into the vessel, and Seaton ran toward the controls. I hear battleships, Dunark said. Is it permitted that I operate one of your machine guns? Go. Go as quick as you like. While Seaton was reaching for the speed lever, the first ranging shell from the first warship exploded against the side of the dock below them. His hand grasped the lever just as the second shell screamed through the air, scant yards above them. As he shot the Skylark into the air under five notches of power, a stream of huge projectiles poured through the spot where she had just been. Crane and Duquesne aimed several shots at the battleships, but the range was so extreme that no damage was done. Dunark's rifle, however, was making a continuous chatter, and they turned toward him. He was shooting not at the warships, but at the city growing so rapidly smaller beneath them. He was moving the gun's muzzle in a small spiral, spraying the entire city with death and destruction. As they looked, the first of the shells reached the ground, just as Dunark ceased firing for lack of ammunition. The palace disappeared, blotted out in the cloud of dust, a cloud that spiraled outward until it obscured the area where the city had been. 
High enough to be safe, Seaton stopped climbing and went out to confer with the others. Wow, it sure feels good to get a cool breath of air, he said, inhaling deeply the thin, cold air of that altitude. Then he saw the Continalians, who, besides having taken a beating from the, to them, atrocious acceleration, were gasping for breath and shivering pale with cold. If this is what you like, Dunark said, trying manfully to grin, I see at last why you wear clothes. Apologizing quickly, Seaton went back to the board and laid a course on a downward slant toward the ocean. Then he asked Duquesne to take over and rejoin the group. There's no accounting for tastes, he told Dunark, but I can't hand your climate a thing. It's hotter and muggier than Washington in August, and that, as the poet feelingly remarked, is really going some. But there's no sense in sitting here in the dark. Snap that switch, will you, Dottie? Be glad to. Now we'll see what they really look like. Wow, they are beautiful. In spite of being sort of greenish, they really are. But Sitar took one look at the woman by her side and shut both her eyes and screamed. What a horrible light! What a horrible sight! Shut it off, please! I'd rather be in darkness all my life! Did you ever see any darkness? Seaton interrupted. Yes, I shut myself into a dark closet once when I was a girl, and it scared me half out of my senses. I'll take back what I started to say, but that light... Dorothy had already turned it off. ...was the most terrible thing I ever saw. Why, Sitar, Dorothy said, you look perfectly stunning. They see things differently than we do, Seaton explained. Their optic nerves respond differently and send a set of different messages to the brain. The same stimulus produces two entirely different end sensations. Am I making myself clear? Sort of. Not really, Dorothy said doubtfully. Take a concrete example. The Kandalian color Emlap. Can you describe it? Well, it's kind of greenish-orange, but it shouldn't be. But what we learned from Dunark, it's a brilliant purple. That's what they see? There you go. That's what I mean. Okay, everybody, get set. We're going to tear off a few knots for Condalek. As they neared the ocean, several Mardanalian battleships tried to intercept them, but the Skylark hopped over them, and her speed was such that pursuit was not attempted. The ocean was crossed at the same high speed. Dunark, who had already tuned the Skylark's powerful transmitter to his father's private frequency, reported to him everything that had happened, and the Emperor and Crown Prince worked out a modified version which was to be broadcast throughout the nation. Crane drew Seaton aside. Do you really think we can trust these Kandalians any more than we should have trusted the Mardanalians? It might be better for us to stay in the Skylark instead of going to the palace at all. Yes to the first, no to the second. I went off half-cocked last time, I'll admit that. But I've got his whole mind inside my skull, so I know him a lot better than I know you. They've got some mighty funny ideas, and they're basically bloodthirsty and hard as tungsten carbide. But you know what? They're pretty much as decent as we are. As for staying in here, what good would it do? Steel is as soft as mush to the stuff they've got. And we can't go anywhere anyway. No copper. We're down to the plating in spots. And we couldn't if we were full of copper. The old bus is a wreck, 
She's got to be completely rebuilt. But you don't have to worry about it this time, Mart. I know they're friends of ours. You don't say that very often, Crane conceded. And when you do, I believe you. All right, all my objections are withdrawn. Flying over an immense city, the Skylark came to a halt directly above the palace, which, with its landing dock nearby, was very similar to that of Nalboon, the Mardinalian potentate. From the city beneath the Skylark, hundreds of big guns roared in welcome. Banners and streamers hung from every point. The air became tinted and perfumed with a bewildering variety of colors and scents. Ether and air alike were full of messages of welcome and hymns of joy. A fleet of giant warships came up to escort the battered little globe with impressive ceremony down to the landing dock, while around them great numbers of smaller aircraft flitted. Tiny one-man machines darted here and there, apparently always in imminent danger of collision with each other or their larger fellows, but always escaping as though by a miracle. Beautiful pleasure planes soared and dipped and wheeled like great gulls, and cleaving their stately way through the hordes of lesser craft, immense, multi-plane passenger liners, partially supported by helicopter screws, turned aside from their scheduled courses to pay homage to the half of the Condonalian royal family so miraculously returned from the dead. As the Skylark approached the roof of the dock, all escorting vessels dropped away. On the roof, instead of the brilliant assemblage the Earthmen had expected to see, there was only a small group of people, all of whom were as completely unadorned as were Dunark and the other erstwhile captives. In answer to Seton's look of surprise, Dunark said, with feeling, My father, mother, and the rest of the family, they knew we'd be stripped. They are meeting us that way. Seton landed the ship. He and his four stayed inside while the family reunion which was very similar to an earthly one under similar circumstances, took place. Dunark then led his father up to the Skylark, and the Tellurians disembarked. Friends, I have told you of my father. I present to you Roban, the Carphidix of Kondal. Father, it is an honor to present to you those who rescued us from Nalboon and Mardinal. Seton, Carphidix of Knowledge. Crane, Carfidix of Wealth, Miss Vainman and Miss Spencer, the Carfidelix Duquesne, he said, waving his hand at him, is a lesser authority of knowledge and is captive of the others. The Cofidex Dunark exaggerates our services, Seaton said, and does not mention the fact that he saved all our lives. Disregarding Seaton's remark, Roban thanked them in the name of Kandal and introduced them to the rest of his party. As they all walked toward the elevator, the Emperor turned to his son with a puzzled expression. I know our guests are from a very distant world, and I understand your accident with the educator, but I cannot understand the titles of these men. Knowledge and wealth are not, cannot be ruled over. Are you sure that you have translated their titles correctly? No translation is possible, father. Crane has no title. Anne was not at all willing for me to apply any title to him. Seton's title, one of learnedness, has no equivalent in our language. What I did was to call them what each one would certainly become if he had been born one of us. Their government is not a government at all, 
but stark madness. The rulers, being chosen by the people themselves, who change their minds and their rulers every year or two, and everyone being equal before the law, does just as he pleases. Incredible, exclaimed Roban. How then is anything done? I do not know. I simply do not understand it at all. They do not seem to care as a nation whether anything worth while gets done or not, as long as each man has what he calls his liberty. But that is not the worst, or the most unreasonable. Listen to this. Dunark told his father all about the Seton Crane versus Duquesne conflict. Then, in spite of all that, Crane gave Duquesne both pistols, and Duquesne stood at Seton's side in that doorway, and the two of them killed every Mardinalian on that roof before I could fire a single shot. Duquesne fired every bullet in both his pistols, and made no attempt whatever to kill either Seton or Crane, and he is still their captive. Incredible! What an incomprehensibly distorted sense of honor! If it were anyone except you saying this, I would deem it the ravings of a maniac. Are you sure, son, that these are facts? I am sure. I saw them happen. So did the others. But in many other respects they are, well, they are not insane, incomprehensible, but not insane. The tenets of reason, as we know reason, simply are not applicable to many of their ideas, concepts, and actions. Clothing, for instance. Their values, their ethics, are in some respects absolutely incommensurate with ours. However, their sense of honor at bottom is as sound as ours and as strong. And since Nalboon tried to kill them, they are definitely on our side. That at least I can understand, and it is well. The older man shook his head. My mind is full of cobwebs, an enemy who is a friend, or vice versa, or both. A frenemy, a master who arms a slave. That, my son, is simple, plain, stark lunacy. During this conversation they had reached the palace. After traversing grounds even more sumptuous and splendid than those surrounding the palace of Nalboon, Inside the building, Dunark himself led the guests to their rooms, accompanied by the major domo and an escort of guards. The rooms were intercommunicating, and each had a completely equipped bathroom with a small swimming pool built of polished metal in lieu of a tub. Ah, oh, this would be nice, Seaton said, indicating the pool, if you actually had some nice cold water. There is cold water. Dunark turned on a ten-inch stream of lukewarm water, then shut it off and smiled sheepishly. But I keep forgetting what you mean by the word cold. We will install refrigerating machines at once. Don't bother. We won't be here long enough. One thing, though, I forgot to tell you. We'll eat our own food, not yours. Of course, we'll take care of it. I'll be back in half an hour to take you to fourth meal. Scarcely had the earthlings freshened themselves than he was back. But he was no longer the Dunark they had known. He now wore a metal and leather harness that was one blaze of gems. A belt hung with resplendent weapons that replaced the familiar hollow one of metal. His right arm, between the wrist and elbow, was almost covered by six bracelets of transparent, deep cobalt-blue metal, each set with an incredibly brilliant stone of the same color. 
On his left wrist, he wore a condolian chronometer. This was an instrument resembling an odometer, whose numerous revolving segments showed a large and constantly increasing number. The date and time of the Osnomium day expressed in a decimal number of the years of Condalian history. Greetings, O guest from Tellus. I feel more like myself now that I am again in my trappings and have my weapons at my side. He attached a timepiece to the wrist of each of the guests with a bracelet of the blue metal. Will you accompany me to fourth meal, or are you not hungry? We accept with thanks, Dorothy replied promptly. I, for one, am starving by inches. As they walked toward the dining hall, Dunark noticed that Dorothy's eyes kept straying to his bracelets. These are our wedding rings. Man and wife exchange bracelets as part of the ceremony. Then you can always tell whether a man is married and how many wives he has, just by looking at his arm. Nice. Some men on earth wear wedding rings. Others don't. Roban met them at the door of the hall, and Dorothy counted ten of the peculiar bracelets upon his right arm as he led them to places near his own. The room was a replica of the other Osnomium dining hall they had seen, and the women were decorated with the same barbaric splendor of scintillating gems. After the meal, which was a happy one, taking on the nature of a celebration in honor of the return of the children, Duquesne went directly to his room, while the others spent the time until zero hour in strolling about the grounds. Upon returning to the room occupied by the two girls, the couples separated, each girl accompanying her lover to the door of his room. Margaret was ill at ease. What's the matter, sweetheart? Crane asked solicitously. She twisted nervously at a button on his shirt. I didn't know that you... I wasn't... I mean, I didn't... She broke off, then went on in a rush. What did Dunark mean by calling you the Carfadix of wealth? Well, you see, I happen to have a little money, he began. You really are M. Reynolds Crane. Crane put his other arm around her and kissed her and held her close. Is that all that was bothering you? What does money amount to between you and me? Nothing to me, but I'm awfully glad I didn't know anything about it before. She returned his kisses with fervor. That is, it doesn't mean a thing if you're perfectly sure I'm not after your... Crane, the imperturbable, broke a hard and fast rule and interrupted her. Don't say that, dear. Don't even think of it ever again. We both know, between you and me, there never have been, are not now, and never shall be, any doubts or any questions. If I could have that tank full of good cold water right now, Seaton said as he stood with Dorothy in the door of his room, I'd throw you in clothes and all and dive in with you, and we'd soak in it all night. Night. This constant daylight, constant heat, and supersaturated humidity are pulling my cork. And you don't look up to snuff either. He lifted her gorgeous auburn head from his shoulder and studied her face. You look like you've been pulled through a knot hole. You're starting to get black circles under your eyes. I know it. She nestled even closer against him. I'm scared blue half the time. I always thought I had good nerves. But everything here is so perfectly horrible I can't sleep. And I always used to be able to go to sleep in the air two or three inches before I hit the sheets. When I'm with you it isn't too bad. 
I really enjoy a lot of things, but the sleeping periods, ugh. She shivered in the circle of his arms. You can say anything about them you can think of, and I'll back you to your proverbial 19 decimals. I just lie there, tenser and tighter, and my mind goes up like a skyrocket. Peggy and I just huddle up to each other in a ghastly purple funk. I'm ashamed of both of us, but that's the way it is, and we can't seem to help it. I'm sorry, Ace. He tightened his arms. Sorrier than I can say. You got nerve, and you aren't going to fall apart. I know that. It's just that you haven't roughed it away from home enough to be able to feel at home wherever your hat is. The reason you feel safe with me is probably that I feel perfectly at home here with myself, except for the temperature and so on. Uh-huh. Probably. Dorothy gnawed at her lower lip. I never thought I was a clinging vine type, but I'm getting to be. I'm simply scared to death to go to bed. Chin up, sweetheart. I wish I could be with you all the time, and you know how much I wish it, but it won't be that long. We'll fix the old chariot and snap back to earth in a hurry. She pushed him into his room, followed him inside, and closed the door, and put both her hands on his shoulders. Tick Seaton, she said, blushing hotly. You're not as dumb as I thought you were. You're dumber. But if you won't say it, even after such a sob story like this, I will. No law says that a marriage has to be performed on earth to be legal. He pressed her close, his emotion so great that for a minute he couldn't talk, and then he said, I never really thought of anything like that before, Dottie girl. His voice was low and vibrant. If I had, I wouldn't have dared to say it out loud. With you so far away from home, it would just seem... It wouldn't seem anything of the kind, she denied, without waiting to find out what it was that she was denying. Don't you see, you big, dumb-headed, wonderful lug? It's the only thing to do. We need each other. Well, at least I need you so much I can't even say. You're right, we do need each other, he declared fervently. The family would like to have seen me married, of course, but there are some advantages even there. Dad would hate a grand Washington wedding, and so would you. It's better all around to be married here. Seaton, who had been trying to get a word in, silenced her. I'm convinced, Dottie. I have been ever since I came out of shock. I'm so glad I can't express it. I've been scared stiff every time I've thought about our wedding. I'll speak to the Carfadix the first thing in the morning. Or say, how would it be to wake him up and have it done right now? Oh, Dick, be reasonable. Dorothy's eyes, however, danced with glee. That would never do. He's an emperor. Anyway, tomorrow will be awfully suddenly as it is. And, Dick, please talk to Martin, will you? Peggy's scared a lot worse than I am. And Martin, the dear old stupid jerk, is a lot less likely than even you are to think of being the prime mover in anything like this. And Peggy's afraid to suggest it to him. Said she'd curl right up in a ball and die. And I think she would. Huh. Seaton laughed and straightened up and held her out at arm's length. A light dawns. I thought there was something fishy about your walking me home. Uh-huh. Queer, like a nine-dollar bill. Didn't even register. Even your sob story.
I thought my bad example was corrupting your English. A put-up job, huh? What do you think? That I'd have the nerve to do it all by myself? Not at all, Dick. She snuggled up against him again, blissfully content. Just the littlest, teeniest bit of it was all. Seaton opened the door. Mart, bring Peggy over here. Heavens, Dick, be careful. You're going to spoil everything. No, no, I won't. Leave it to me. I bashfully admit that I'm a blinding flash and a deafening report at this diplomacy stuff. I'll try to be smooth, like an eel. The other two joined them. Donnie and I have been talking things over and have decided that today would be the best possible day for a wedding. She's afraid of these long daylight nights, and I'd sleep a lot better if I knew where she was all the time instead of part of the time. She's willing, if you two see it the same way, and make it a double. How about it? And if you say anything but yes, I'll tie you up, Mart, like a pretzel, and take you, Peg, over my knee and spank you. I'll give you one whole second to think it over. Margaret blushed furiously but pressed herself closer against Crane's side. That's time enough for me, Crane said. A marriage here will be recognized anywhere, I think, with a certificate registered. And if the final court declared it invalid, we could be married again. Considering all the circumstances, it would be the best thing for everyone concerned. Crane's lean, handsome face assumed a darker color as he looked down at Margaret's sparkling eyes and happily animated face. Nothing else in existence is as certain as our love. It is, of course, the bride's privilege to set the date. Peggy? The sooner the better, Margaret said, blushing again. Did you say today, Dick? That's what I said. I'll see the car for Dick's about it as soon as we get up. And the two couples separated. I'm just too perfectly happy for words, Dorothy whispered into Seaton's ear as he kissed her goodnight. I simply don't care whether I sleep a wink tonight or not. Chapter 19 Seaton woke up hot and uncomfortable, but with a great surge of joy in his heart. This was his wedding day. Springing out of bed, he released a full stream of cold water, filling the pool in a few moments. Poising lightly on the edge, he made a clean, sharp dive and yelled in surprise as he came snoring to the surface. Dunark had made good on his promise. The water was only a couple of degrees above freezing. After a few minutes of swimming and splashing in the icy water, he rubbed himself down, shaved, put on shirt and slacks, and lifted his powerful bass voice in the wedding chorus from the Rose Maiden. Rise, sweet maid, arise, arise. Rise, sweet maid, arise, arise. Tis the last morning fair for thy maiden eyes. He sang this lustily, out of his sheer joy in being alive, and was surprised to hear three other voices, soprano, contralto, and tenor, continue the song from the adjoining room. He opened the door. Good morning, Dick. You sounded happy, Crane said. So did all of you, but who wouldn't be? Look what today is, he embraced Dorothy ardently. Besides, I found some cold water this morning. Everyone within a mile heard you discover the cold water, Dorothy giggled. We warmed ours up a little. I like a cold bath too, but not ice water, thanks. But I didn't know you two boys could sing, Margaret said. We can't, Seaton assured her. We just barber shop it now and then for fun. 
but it sounded as though you could really sing. I'll say she can sing. I didn't know it till now, but she's soprano soloist at the First Episcopalian Church, no less. Wow, Seaton whistled. If she can stand the strain, we'll have to give this quartet a workout someday, when there's nobody around. All four became silent, thinking of the upcoming event of the day. Until Crane said, They have ministers here, I know, and I know something of their religion, but my knowledge is vague. You know more about it than we do, Dick. Tell us about it while we wait. Seaton paused a moment, odd look on his face, as one turning the pages of an unfamiliar book of reference. He was seeking the answer to Crane's question in the vast store of osnomium information received from Dunark. He spoke slower than usual and used much better English when he replied, As well as I can explain it, it's a very peculiar mixture, partly theology partly Darwinian evolution, or its osnomium equivalent. They believe in a supreme being, the first cause being its nearest English equivalent. They recognize the existence of an immortal and unknowable life principle or soul. They believe that the first cause has laid down the survival of the fittest as its fundamental law, which belief accounts for their perfect physiques. Perfect physiques? Huh, they're as weak as children, Dorothy exclaimed. Well, that's because of the low gravity, Seaton explained. You see, a man of my size weighs only 86 pounds here on a spring balance, so he wouldn't need any more muscle than a boy of 12 or so on Earth. Either one of you girls could easily handle any two of the strongest men on all of Osnome. It would probably take all the strength Dunark has just to stand up on Earth. And considering that fact, they are magnificently developed. They've attained this state by centuries of weeding out the unfit. They've got no hospitals here for the feeble-minded or feeble-bodied. All such are executed. The same reasoning accounts for their cleanliness, physical and moral. Vice is practically unknown. Clean thinking and clean living are rewarded by the production of a better mental and physical type. Especially since they correct wrong living by those terrible punishments Dunark told us about, Margaret put in. Well, maybe. The point is debatable. They also believe that the higher the type, the faster the evolution, and the sooner will mankind reach what they call the ultimate goal and know all things, believing as they do that the fittest must survive. And of course, thinking themselves the superior type, it is ordained that Mardinal must be destroyed utterly, root and branch. Their ministers are chosen from the very fittest, next to the royal family, which is and must remain tops. If it doesn't, it ceases to be the royal family and a fitter family takes over. Anyway, ministers are strong, vigorous, and clean, and are almost always high army officers as well as ministers. An attendant announced the coming of the emperor and his son to pay the call of state, and after the ceremonious greetings had been exchanged, all went into the dining hall for the first meal. After eating, Seton brought up the question of the double wedding. The emperor was overjoyed. Carfordick Seaton, nothing could please us more than to have such a ceremony performed in our palace. Marriage between such highly evolved persons as you four are is demanded by the first cause, whose servants we all are. Aside from that, it is an unheard of honor for any ruler to have even one other Carfordicks married under his roof, and you are granting me the honor of two. 
I thank you and assure you that we will do our best to make the occasion memorable. Nothing fancy, please, Seaton said. Just a simple, plain wedding will do just fine. I will summon Karbix Tarnan to perform the ceremony, Roban said, paying no attention at all to Seaton's remark. Our customary time for ceremonies is just before the fourth meal. Is that time satisfactory for all concerned? It was entirely satisfactory. Dunark, since you are more familiar than I am with the customs of our illustrious visitors, you will take charge. Emperor Roban stated this and strode out of the room. Dunark took up a microphone and sent out call after call after call. Dorothy's eyes sparkled. They must be going to make a production out of our wedding, Dick. A Carbix is the highest dignity of the church, isn't he? Yeah, as well as being commander-in-chief of all the armed forces of Kandal. Next to Roban, he's the most powerful man in the whole empire. They're going to throw a brawl, all right. It'll make the biggest Washington wedding you ever saw look like some small fry's birthday party. How you're going to hate it. Uh-huh. I already do. She laughed rapturously. I'll cry bitter and salty tears all over the place. Not. It's you that's going to suffer in silence, I hope. Well, as silently as possible. Check. He grinned, and she became all of a sudden serious. I've always wanted a big wedding, Dick, but remember, I wanted to give it up, and I thought I had. I'll remember that always, sweetheart. As I have said before, and I'm about to say again, you're a blinding flash and a deafening report. The universe is best. As Dunark finished his telephoning, Seaton spoke to him. Dottie said a while back she'd like to have a few yards of that tapestry fabric for a dress. But say... She's going to get one anyway, only finer and fancier. Just so, Dunark agreed. In high state ceremonials, we always wear robes of state. But you two men, for some reason or other, do not wish to wear them. We'll wear white slacks and sports shirts. As you know, if you could find the knowledge, while the women of our race go in for an ornamental dress, most of the men do not. True, Dunark frowned in perplexity. Another of those incomprehensible oddities. However, since your dress will be something no Kandalian has ever seen, it will actually be more resplendent than the robes of your brides. I have called in our most expert weavers and tailors to make the gowns. Before they arrive, let us discuss the ceremony and decide what it will be. You are all somewhat familiar with our customs, but on this I make very sure. Each couple is married twice. The first marriage is symbolized by the exchange of plain bracelets. This marriage lasts two years, during which period either may divorce the other by announcing the fact. Well, Crane said, some such system of trial marriage is advocated among us every few years, but they also surely degenerate into free love that none has found a foothold. We have no such trouble. You see, before the first marriage... Each couple, from lowest to highest, is given a mental examination. Any person whose graphs show moral turpitude is shot. No questions being asked, Dunark went on. At the end of the two years, the second marriage, which is indissolvable, is performed. 
jeweled bracelets are substituted for the plain ones. In the case of highly evolved persons, it is permitted that the two ceremonies be combined into one. Then there is a third ceremony, used only in the marriage of persons of the very highest evolution, in which eternal vows are taken, and the Phaedon, the eternal jewel, is exchanged. I am virtually certain that all four of you are in the eternal class, but that isn't enough. I must be absolutely certain. Hence, if either couple elects the eternal ceremony, I must examine that couple here and now. Otherwise, and should one of you be rejected by Tarnan, not only would my head roll, but my father would be intolerably disgraced. Huh? Why? Seaton demanded. Because I am responsible, Dunark replied quietly. You heard my father give me the responsibility of seeing to it that your marriages, the first of their kind in Kandalian history, are carried out as they should be. If such a frightful thing as a rejection occurred, it would be my fault. I would be decapitated then and there as an incompetent. My father would kill himself because only an incompetent would delegate an important undertaking to an incompetent. Whoa, what a code! Seaton whispered to Crane under his breath. What a code! Then to Dunark. But suppose you pass me and Tarnan doesn't. Then what? That cannot happen. Mind graphs do not lie and cannot possibly be falsified. However, there is no coercion. You are at perfect liberty to elect any one of the three marriages you choose. What is your choice? Well, I want to be married for good, and the longer the better. I vote for the eternal, Dunark. Bring out your test kit. So do I, Dunark, Dorothy said, catching her breath. One question first, Crane asked. Would that mean that my wife would be breaking her vows if she married again after my death? By no means. Young men are being killed every day. Their wives are expected to marry again. Most men have more than one wife. Any number of men and women may be linked that way after death, just as in your chemistry varying numbers of atoms unite to form stable compounds. Crane and Margaret agreed that they too wanted to be married forever. In your case, rings will be substituted for bracelets. After the ceremony, you men may discard them if you like. Not me, Seaton declared. I'm going to wear them the rest of my life. And Crane expressed the same thought. The preliminary examination, then. Put on these helmets, please. He handed one each to Dorothy and Seaton and donned one himself. He pressed a button and instantly the two could read each other's minds in the minutest detail and each knew that Dunark was reading the minds of both. Moreover, he was studying minutely a device he held in both hands. "'You two pass. I knew you would,' he said, and a couple of minutes later he said the same thing to Crane and Margaret. "'I was very sure,' Dunark said, "'but in this case knowing was not enough. I had to prove it incontrovertibly. But the robe-makers have been waiting.' You two girls should go to them now, please. As the girls left, Dunark said, While I was in Mardenal, I heard scraps of talk about a military discovery. Besides the gas whose effects we felt, I heard also that both secrets had been stolen from Kandal. There was some gloating, in fact, that we were to be destroyed by our own inventions. 
I have learned here that what I heard was true. Well, that's pretty easy to fix, Seton said. Let's get the Skylark fixed up, and we'll hop over there and jerk Nalboon out of his palace, if there is any palace left, and if he's still alive, and read his mind. If not Nalboon, somebody else, right? It's worth trying anyway, Dunark said. In any event, we must repair the Skylark and replenish her supply of copper as soon as possible. The three men went out to the wrecked spaceship and went through it with care. Inside, damage was extensive and serious. Many instruments were broken, including one of the object compasses focused on Earth. It's a good thing you had three of them, Mart. Got to hand it to you for using the old think tank, Seaton said as he tossed the useless equipment out upon the dock. You had better save them, Dick, Dunark said. You may have use for them later. Uh-uh. All they're good for is scrap. Then I will save them. I may need that kind of scrap some day. He issued orders that all discarded instruments and apparatus were to be stored. Well, I suppose the first thing to do is set up some hydraulic jacks and start straightening. Why not throw all this soft stuff away and build it of Aranac? Dunark suggested. You do have plenty of salt. Well, that's really a thought. Yeah, we brought along two years' supply. Around a hundred pounds, at a guess. Dunark's eyes widened at the amount mentioned. And in spite of his knowledge of earthly conditions, he started to say something then stopped in confusion. But Seaton knew his thought. Sure, we can let you have thirty pounds or so. Can't we, Mark? Certainly. In view of what they are doing for us, I'd insist on it. Dunark acknowledged the gift with shining eyes and heartfelt but not profuse thanks. He himself carried the precious stuff, escorted by a small army of commissioned officers to the palace. He returned with a full construction crew, and after making sure that the power bar would work as well through Aranac as through steel, he fired machine-gun-like instructions at several foremen, and then turned again to Seaton. Just one more thing, and the men can begin. How thick do you want the walls? Our battleships carry one inch. In the past, we could not make it any thicker for lack of salt. But you have salt to give away, and since we're doing this by an exact copy process, I suggest four feet, same as you have now, to save a lot of time in making drawings and redesigning your gun mounts and so on. I see. Well, not that we'll ever need it, but it would save a lot of time. And besides, we're used to it. Go ahead. Dunark issued more orders, then as the mechanics set to work without a useless motion. He stood silent, immersed in thought. Are you worried about Mardinal, Dunark? Yes, I cannot help thinking about that new weapon, whatever it is, that Nelboon now has. Why not build another ship exactly like ours, with four feet of Aranac? and simply blow Mardinal off the map. Building the ship would be easy enough, but X is completely unknown here. In fact, as you know, it cannot exist here. You'd have to be ungodly careful with it, that's for sure. But we've got an awful lot of it. We can give you a chunk, if you like. I could not accept it. It is not like salt. Sure it is. We can get a million tons of it any time we want. He carried one of the lumps to the airlock and tossed it out onto the dock. Here, take this nugget, get busy. Seaton watched entranced as the Kandalian mechanics 
set to work with skills and tools undreamed of on earth. The whole interior of the vessel was supported by a complex false work. Then the plates and members were cut away as though they were made of paper. The sphere grooved for the repellers and with the columns and central machinery complete was molded of a stiff plastic substance. This soon hardened into a rock-like mass into which all necessary openings were carefully cut. Then the structure was washed with a very dilute solution of salt by special experts who took extreme pains not to lose or waste any fraction of a drop. Platinum plates were clamped into place and silver cables as large as a man's leg were run to the terminals of a tight beam power station. Current was applied and the mass became almost invisible, transformed into transparent Aranac. Then indeed the earth people had a vehicle such as never been seen before, a four foot thick shell of a substance 500 times as strong and as hard as the strongest and hardest steel, cast in one piece with the sustaining framework designed by the world's foremost engineer, a structure that no conceivable force could injure, housing an inconceivable force. The false work was removed, columns, members, and braces were painted black to render them plainly visible. The walls of the cabins were also painted, several areas being left transparent to serve as windows. A second period of work was drawing to a close, and Seton and Crane became marveled at what had been accomplished. Both vessels will be finished tomorrow, except for the instruments, and so on. Another crew will work during the sleeping period, installing the guns and fittings. Since the wedding was to be before fourth meal, all three went back to the palace, Crane and Seton to get dressed, Dunark to make sure that everything was as it should be. Seton went into Crane's room accompanied by an attendant carrying his suitcase. No dress suits? Shame on you, Seton chided. I thought you thought of everything. You're slipping there, chum. I'm afraid so, Crane agreed equitably. You covered it very nicely, though. Congratulations on your quick thinking. Only Dunnock is going to know that whites are not our most formal dress. And he isn't going to be telling anybody, Seaton said. Dunnock came in some time later. Give us a look, Seaton begged. See if we pass inspection. I was never so rattled in my life, and the more I think about this brainstorm I had about wearing whites, the less I think of it. But I can't think of anything else we've got that would look half as good. They were clad in spotless white, from tennis shoes to open collars. The two tall figures, crane slender, wiry at ease, Seton's broad-shouldered, powerful, prowling about with unconscious suppleness and grace, and the two high-bred faces, each wearing a look of keen anticipation, fully justified Dunark's answer. You will do, fellows, and I am not just chomping my choppers either. With Seton's own impulsive goodwill, he shook hands with them both and wished them an eternity of happiness. The next thing on the agenda is for you to talk with your brides. Wait, what do you mean, before the ceremony? Seton asked. Yes, this cannot be waived. You take them. No, you don't. That's one detail I missed. You, especially the girls, would think our formal procedure at this point somewhat indel... Anyway, not quite nice in public. You put your arms around them and kiss them, is all. Come. 
Dorothy and Margaret had been dressed in their bridal gowns by Dunark's six wives, under the watchful eye of his mother, the first Carfadier herself. Sitar stood the two side by side, then drew off to survey the effect. You are the loveliest things in the whole world, she cried. Except for this horrible light, Dorothy moaned. I wish they could see what we really look like. I'd like to, myself. There was a peal of delighted laughter from Sitar, and she spoke to one of the maids, who drew dark curtains over the windows and pressed a switch, flooding the room with pure white light. Danach made these lamps, Sitar said with intense satisfaction. I knew exactly how you would feel. The two earthmen and Dunark came in. For moments nothing was said. Seaton stared at Dorothy, hungrily, almost doubting his eyes. For white was white, pink was pink, and her gorgeous hair shone in all its natural splendor of burnished bronze. In their wondrous Kandalian bridal costumes, the girls were beautiful indeed. They wore heavily jeweled slippers, above which were tiered anklets, each a blaze of gems. Their arms and throats were so covered with sparkling, scintillating bracelets, necklaces, and pendants that little bare skin was to be seen. And the gowns. They were softly shimmering garments, infinitely more supple than the finest silk, thick woven of metallic threads of a fineness unknown on earth. Garments that floated about or clung to those beautifully curved bodies in lines of exquisite grace. For black-haired Margaret, with her ivory skin, the Kandalian princess had chosen an almost white metal, upon which, in complicated figures, sparkled numberless jewels of pastel shades. Dorothy's gown was of a dark, lustrous green, its fabric half hidden by an intricate design of blazing green and flaming crimson gems, the strange luminous jewels of this strange world. Each wore her long, heavy hair, almost unbound, after the Kondalian bridal fashion, brushed until it fell like a shining mist, confined only from temple to temple by a structure of jewels and rare metal filigree. Seaton looked from Dorothy to Margaret, then back to Dorothy. He looked into violet eyes, deep with wonder and love, more beautiful than any jewels in her gorgeous costume. Disregarding the notables who had been filing into the room, she placed her hands on his shoulders, he placed his hands on her smooth, rounded hips. I love you, Dick, now and always, she said, and her own violin had no more wonderful tones than did her voice. And I love you, Dot, now and always, he replied. And then they both forgot all about the protocol, but the demonstration apparently satisfied Kandalian requirements. Dorothy, eyes shining, drew herself away from Seaton and glanced at Margaret. Isn't she the most beautiful thing you've ever laid eyes on? No, not really, but I'll let Mark keep on thinking that she is. Accompanied by the Emperor and his son, Seaton and Crane went into the chapel, which, already brilliant, had been decorated anew with even greater splendor. Through wide arches, the Earthmen saw for the first time Osnomians wearing clothing, the great room was filled with the highest nobility of Kandal, wearing their resplendent robes of state. As the men entered one door, 
Dorothy and Margaret, with the Empress and Sitar, entered the other. The assemblage rose to its feet and snapped into a grand salute. Martial music crashed and the two parties marched toward each other, meeting at a raised platform on which stood the Carbix, Tarnan, a handsome stately man who carried easily his eighty years of age. Tarnan raised both arms, and the music ceased. It was a solemn and impressive spectacle, the room of burnished metal with its bizarre decorations, the constantly changing harmony of color from visible lamps, the group of nobles standing rigidly at attention in an utter absence of all sound as the Carbix lifted his arms in invocation of the first cause. All these things deepened the solemnity of that solemn moment. When Tarnan spoke, his voice, deep with some great feeling, inexplicable even to those who knew him best, carried clearly to every part of the great chamber. Friends, it is our privilege today to assist in a most notable event, the marriage of four personages from another world. For the first time in the history of Osnome has one Carfedix the honor of entertaining the bridal party of another. It is not for this fact alone, however, that this occasion is to be memorable. A far deeper reason is that we are witnessing, possibly for the first time in the history of the universe, the meeting upon terms of mutual fellowship and understanding of the inhabitants of two worlds separated by unthinkable distances of trackless space and by equally great differences in evolution, conditions of life, and environment. Yet these strangers are actuated by the spirit of good faith and honor which is instilled into every worthy being by the great first cause, in the working out of whose vast projects all things are humble instruments. In honor of the friendship of the two worlds, we will proceed with the ceremony. Richard Seaton and Martin Crane exchange plain rings with Dorothy Vainman and Margaret Spencer. They did so, and repeated after the Carbix simple vows of love and loyalty. May the first cause smile upon this temporary marriage and render it worthy of permanence. As a servant and agent of the first cause, I pronounce you two, and you two, husband and wife. But we must remember that the dull division of mortal man cannot pierce the veil of the future, which is as crystal to the all-beholding eyes of the first cause. Though you love each other truly, some unforeseen thing may come between you to mar perfection of your happiness. Therefore a time is granted you during which you will discover whether or not your unions are perfect. After a pause, Tarnan went on. Martin Crane, Margaret Spencer, Richard Seaton, Dorothy Vainman, you are before us to take the final vows which will bind your bodies together for life and your spirits together for eternity. Have you considered the gravity of this step sufficiently to enter into this marriage without reservation? I have, 
the four replied in unison. Don for a moment the helmets before you. They did so, and upon each of four oscilloscope screens there appeared hundreds of irregular lines. Dead silence held while Tarnan studied certain traces upon each of the four giant screens, which were plainly visible to everyone in the room. I have seen, each man and woman of this congregation has seen, that each one of you four visiting personages is of the evolutionary state required for eternal marriage. Remove the helmets, exchange the jeweled rings. Do you each individually swear, in the presence of the first cause, and before the supreme justices of Kondal, that you will be true and loyal, each helping his chosen one in all things, great and small, that never throughout eternity, in thought or in action, will your mind or your body or your spirit stray from the path of truth and honor. I do, they all said. I pronounce you married with the eternal marriage. Just as the phaedon which each of you wears, the eternal jewel which no force of man is able to change or to deform, and which gives off its inward light without change and without end, shall endure through endless cycles of time, after the metal of the ring that holds it shall have crumbled to decay. Even so shall your spirits, formerly two, now one and indissolvable, progress in ever-ascending evolution throughout eternity, after the base material which is your body shall have co-mingled with the base material from which they came. The Carbix lowered his arms, and the bridal party walked to the door through ranks of uplifted weapons. They were led to another room, where the contracting parties signed their names in a register. Dunark then produced two marriage certificates, plates of a brilliant purple metal, beautifully engraved in parallel columns of English and Condalian script, and heavily bordered with precious jewels. The principals and witnesses signed below each column, and the signatures were engraved into the metal. They were then escorted to the dining hall, where a truly royal repast was served. Between courses, the nobles welcomed the visitors and wished them happiness. After the last course, Tarnan spoke, his voice again agitated by the emotion that had puzzled his hearers during the marriage service. All Kandal is with us here in spirit, joining us in welcoming these guests, of whose friendship no greater warrant could be given than their willingness to grant us the privilege of their marriage. Not only have they given us a boon that will make their names revered throughout the nation as long as Kandal shall exist, but also they have their means of showing us plainly that the first cause is upon our side, that our ages-old institution of honor is in truth the only foundation upon which can be built a race worthy to survive. At the same time they have been the means of showing us that our hated foe, entirely without honor, building his race upon a foundation of bloodthirsty savagery alone, is building wrongly and must perish utterly from the face of Osdome. His hearers listened, impressed by his earnestness, but did not understand his meaning and he went on with a deep light shining in his eyes. 
You do not understand. It is inevitable that two people as different as we are should be possessed of widely differing knowledges and abilities. These friends from their remote world have already made it possible for us to construct engines of destruction which will obliterate Mardenal completely. A fierce shout of joy interrupted the speaker, and the nobles sprang to their feet, saluting the visitors with weapons held aloft. As soon as they had reseated themselves, Tarnan went on. That is the boon. The vindication of our evolution is as easily explained. These friends landed first in Mardenal. Had Nelboon met them in honor, he would have gained the boon. But he attempted to kill his guests and steal their treasures, with what results you already know. We, however, in exchange for the few and trifling services we have been able to render them, have received even more of value than Nalboon would have obtained, even had his plans not been nullified by their vastly higher state of evolution. There was a clamor of cheering as Tarnan sat down. The nobles formed themselves into an escort of honor and conducted the two couples to their apartments. Alone in one of their rooms, Dorothy turned to her husband with tears shining in her eyes. Dick, sweetheart, wasn't that the most wonderful thing you ever heard? Grand in the old meaning of the word, really grand. And that old man was simply superb. I'll never get over it. It was all that, Dot. It got down to where I lived. So much so that I stopped having the jitters as soon as it started. But Seton had had enough of solemnity for one day. Do you know that I haven't had a good look at you yet, under light that I can see by? Stand over there, beautiful. Let me feast my eyes on you. I will not, she responded instantly to his mood. I haven't seen myself either, and that's just as important. More so, he said with a wide and happy smile. So we'll go over to that full-length mirror, and we'll both feast our eyes. Of course, I saw Peggy for about a second, but I can't tell you much from that. She's just... She broke off in the middle of the word and stared into the mirror. That is me? I mean... Dorothy Vainman? I mean... Uh, Dorothy Seaton, he assured her. Yes, irrevocably so. She stuck out a foot, the better to examine the slipper. She lifted her gown well above her knees and studied the anklets and leg bands. She put her hands on her hips and wriggled, setting everything above the waist into motion. She turned around and repeated the performance to watch the ornaments dance on her expansive back. She studied the towering, fantastically jeweled headdress. Then she turned to Seaton, sheer delight spreading over her expressive face. You know what, Dick? She exclaimed gleefully. I'm going to wear this whole regalia, just like it is, to the President's Ball. You wouldn't. You really couldn't. Nobody would have that much nerve. Really? That's what you think. But you're not a woman. Thank God. Just wait and see. You know that red-headed copycat, Maribel Whitcomb? Yeah, I've heard you mention her. Unfavorably. Just wait till she sees this, that hennaed, padded vixen. Her eyes will stick out as though they had stalks, and she'll die of envy and frustration right there on the floor. She couldn't even try to copy this. Check. To even more than the proverbial 19 decimals. 
But we've got to change or we're going to be late, honey. Uh-huh. I suppose so. Dorothy went on looking backwards at the mirror as they walked away. One thing's for sure, though, Dickie mine. I don't know about the deafening report part, but I certainly am a blinding flash. <laughs>